Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Okay, ready. Okay. <laughs> so, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a question for you, and if you answer it cor- correctly, I'll give you 50 cents. 50 cents or 15? 50. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is compelling. <laughs> well, uh, for the, the people cannot see, but Holly is wearing a baseball cap that has a B on it, and I asked her about it, and she said, it's for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm-hmm. For 50 cents, why are they called the Dodgers? That is a really good question because they dodge the Astros this year in the World Series. No. <laughs> because in the early days of streetcars in um, New York and Brooklyn, mm-hmm. they powered the streetcars with the electrical electricity. And um, the streetcars would sometimes overheat and blow up. But you could hear when that was about to happen. I mean, Mm. people got smart enough to figure out, uh uh-oh, and they would get off the streetcar to dodge the exploding material. And it was that's where the Brooklyn Dodgers got their name. That is, I did not know that. You know, but I do have this tool called the Google at my hand. (laughs) You do Uh, have what? This tool called the Google at my hand, at my fingertips, and um, yeah, it's it says exactly that. In the 1930s, the team officially adopted the Dodgers' nickname, which had been used since the 1890s, named after P- Brooklyn pedestrians who dodged the streetcars in the city. So you looked that up because you you doubted that I was telling the truth. No, I wanted to win the 50 cents, but my my internet wasn't working fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was not a fair bet. I I would pay you 50 cents and you're going to pay me $50. That's not a fair bet. Oh. Oh, maybe I didn't say that part. Like a thousand times what you owe what you paid me, huh? <laughs> so, um, did you hear the news today that the Pope I Pope Francis did. has come out in favor of same-sex marriage? In this country, we're moving in the opposite direction. I have friends who are um, in same-sex marriages who are terrified of losing their rights to um, to be a married couple, to combine their taxes, to have visitations, to even have that certificate of marriage. Um, and I have one friend even who has her passport ready should she need to move mm. to preserve her relationship because her wife has dual citizenship. We live in strange and interesting times. Yeah, we do. Cornell West talks about being hopeful, but not optimistic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I'm, I can relate to that right now. You know, I'm not, optimism feels a little too flimsy for me right now, but if I don't maintain hope, then 
what am I sort of fighting for? What am I living for? Uh, on yeah. Saturday, when we were doing the webinar with Jackie Lewis, and by the way, mm -hmm. the Sunday edition of Jackie Lewis is now on the Ordinary Life website. Good. I encourage people to watch it. And our technical guru, Tim Leatherwood, said that the Saturday webinar will go up, but it will have to be put up in blocks because you can't upload that much material at once. Mm -hmm. At any rate, while while I was listening to her on Saturday, I came up with this oxymoronic phrase about my own participation in civil rights, and it is optimistically disappointed hmm. and disappointedly optimistic. <laughs> Because it's both of those things. I mean, we, yeah, I've reached places in my life where I thought, boy, we've, we've crossed over the top of the hill. The rest of it is downhill. And then something like uh, the murder of George Floyd comes about and we see that we're just, we're backwards. Yeah. I don't know how to understand. Um, Racism. I saw something recently as a documentary about the Germans who executed the um, Jews in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And the men, not women, the men who did that seemed to think that the most important thing to know about them regarding that was that they did not dislike the Jews personally. It wasn't a personal thing. Mm. So they saw the Jews as objects mm -hmm. to objectify people. I mean, this is sort of, um, and that's exactly right. Like when you can depersonalize someone, then they become, what do we call it in war? Collateral damage. You can accept mm -hmm. that about a body, that one can become collateral damage to your sort of tribal cause. And I think, you know, that's what happened with the Native Americans in this country. That's what happened with um, those who were enslaved, those who were kidnapped from Africa, is that we depersonalized them so we could justify the collateral damage to create the empire, you know. I, I, you know how Jackie used that term, we need to un-empire Jesus. I saw, I saw someone in the chat say, like, what does that mean? I don't understand that. What does that mean to you to when, when, when we say we need to un-empire Jesus, which is the same thing, by the way, that Richard Rohr writes about in his book about the Beatitudes. We are all born into a system that we have handed to us as the truth. Uh, and in order to survive mm -hmm. in that system, um, like your three precious children got born into the Josh and Holly system. <laughs> and in order to survive in that system, they have to play by the system's rules. Yeah, it's, that's so interesting. The Josh and Holly system is made up of simultaneously a col colonist mentality and a, and a liberation yeah. mentality, right? right? And so... We're having to disrupt and braid and combine and erase <laughs> pieces of mm -hmm. the old story. 
to create a new story. I, you know, I, I, I was raised in a system where one of the rules of survival was you had to clean your plate at right. every meal. Yeah. All right. So in, in order to maintain the affection and attention that we need to survive, we have to figure out a way to ingratiate ourselves to the rules, rule makers in the system where we, um, where we're mm -hmm. born. And that's true for any, any kind of tribal gathering. And hmm. that's why I think that the most important spiritual event in a person's life is developing the courage to leave the system. Yes. Holy moly. Yeah. I, I, I know in my own life, I've in some ways left my system, right? Um, not only by marrying who I married, but by challenging some of the values of the system. And it was absolutely disruptive. And there were times when I felt very much like a kind of satellite kind of orbiting on its own and not really knowing its destination. Mm -hmm. um, but there is hope in kind of being an outcast from the system because you come home not only to yourself, not only to this, this maybe beautiful star that was buried inside that couldn't have been revealed inside of the system, but you also find your constellation. You find these other, these other stars to collaborate and connect with. And I also believe that when, the, when one can challenge the system, even those that we are brought up in, and challenge it both lovingly and also fierce, fiercely, <laughs> that we garner more respect sometimes from those that we are pressing against. Do you think that that is, is true or a possible truth? I think that can be one outcome. It's always threatening to the system and to the person who leaves it when the leaving takes place. <laughs> but uh, uh, let me go back and, and ground this just a little bit. In the, in the Jewish tradition, the beginning of faith is when Abraham leaves home and sets out for a country he knows not of. That's a, that becomes a, a, a metaphor for what the spiritual journey is all about. Mm -hmm. Jesus, in a couple of significant places in the Jesus story, um, of course, one of the things he does is call people to leave their belonging system to follow him. And that's one of the, the very upsetting things he did. But in, in one story that is probably, mm -hmm. the Jesus scholars say, historically accurate. Jesus' brothers and sisters and mother come to a place where he's teaching and says, we want you to come home uh, because they thought he was crazy. And Jesus looks around at the people around mm -hmm. him 
and says uh, the person who delivers the message says your mother and your yeah. mother and your sister are outside they want you to come home and jesus looks around at the people that he's speaking to and says these are my mother and my brother and my sisters and and in that way he totally redefines what his belonging system is and um you know i've been spending some time this morning trying to think about how we will talk about the last of the Beatitudes this coming Sunday. And again, I got reminded how um, mm -hmm. Jesus is not only speaking to the bottom of the pyramid that you've described, mm -hmm. he's part of the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, Anyway, it, it, it's, it, I think it's so hard sometimes for us to have a real appreciation for the teachings of Jesus because we're so sociologically, economically removed from the group that he's talking about, talking to. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what, what was that sort of um, poem or, or prayer you read the other day about um, we so often see ourselves um, as Jesus, not Judas, as, mm -hmm. <laughs> or we see Jesus as the empire, not as the, not as the outcasts, it, you know, that, that, that I think so often we will, we've wanted to align or make easier this message of someone who was a radical outsider, who, who would have today been called an agitator, a communist, a, a disruptor and unpatriotic. And by all intents and purposes, he was unpatriotic because he did not serve the system of patriotism. Mm -hmm. He did not, he wanted to disrupt the empire. When Bernie Sanders was running for president, many very conservative Christians opposed him and his agenda because he mm -hmm. was a Jewish socialist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's what Jesus was too. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And I think we've made certain things into bad words, like socialism has become a bad word. Um, communism has become a bad word. Um, I want to say the enactment of those systems have not worked in the true meaning of the word. What's at the root of communism, but community, right? If we truly lived in communion, we would be embodying communism, right? But communism right. as a system actually hasn't been embodied that way either. So it's kind of like we've let these things become bad words and we can't even see them for the root that they were sort of meant to be. You know, socialism is about a social movement, not about a top-down order. It's like we've even fit those words into that sort of like top-down order as opposed to into a lateral uh, fractalized vision that I think is at the true root of those words. So um, I would just let everybody know that I have been in touch with Darmut Amuraku, practicing saying his name. <laughs> I want to really encourage people to read his works. Yes. Um, particularly when the disciple comes of age is, I think is a good place to start. It's his latest book, but, 
I want to get him to talk to us about his vision of what the community of empowerment is about, because it embodies some of the best aspects of both the socialistic movement and a communist movement uh, to get people to feel like they are participating in the system in a way where they not only have power, but are empowered. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that anybody could say that would be a bad thing to have happen. Yeah. I don't think so either. I was, I was thinking today, I was listening to Reverend Otis Wood, who I mentioned actually when we were, we were conversing with Jackie Lewis last week, and she said she's friends with him. Um, Reverend Otis Wood was in conversation with Krista Tippett on her uh, podcast on being and he is a kind of direct descendant of Howard Thurman's. Um, Howard Thurman, who envisioned oh, the really? community. Yeah. Not yeah. meaning that he's not related to him, but what I mean is like his thinking is, is in lineage with um, Howard Thurman's, as is Jackie Lewis's, right? This idea of the beloved community. And um, he, he talks about this moment where Um, his community, his congregation was preparing to join in solidarity, the peaceful protests in Chicago. And they come out and they see these, these kids across the street on skateboards and, and um, bikes and holding signs. And it's clear that these kids are not from Southside Chicago. And he doesn't say this, but it's clear that these kids are white. (laughs) And, Uh um, and the signs that they're holding are, um, white silence is complicit and black lives matter. And this congregation of kind of like mixed ethnicity uh, in Southside Chicago led by a black man is kind of like, what do we do with that? (laughs) And um, so they joined them. And so here they have this, this march happening young and old, black and white, Christian and Muslim and, you know, just, together. And I think that this idea of the beloved community, we, we miss the power of that, of that visual, right? There, there is such power in empowering all of the voices that want to participate in justice in a community. And I, and I really think like to create the ideal of the beloved community, we can't say, well, there are good people on both sides. We can't say this voice of exclusion and, and uh, white supremacy is as important as this voice of inclusion and empowerment. We have to make, take a stand. We have to say no. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're on the side of justice. We hope these folks will come along, but we're gonna march, we're gonna walk. We're going to carry water, if you will, which is what my new friend Lawana Kembro says is like we're carrying water. Um, you know, that's that's the empowered community. Call out the injustice, march for justice. And that's a delicate balance, you know, calling out injustice and 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 being for justice mm-hmm. is messy sometimes. <laughs> so um, are you having any uh, thoughts about um, where we will be in this country following the election? Mm. 
I have a friend, uh, my, my son was playing outside with a neighbor yesterday and I walked over to get him and, um, the little boy's mom is a friend of mine who I really adore. And, uh, we were chatting and, and her husband came out and he mentioned in conversation, wow, I just got this email. I think he's an investment banker, um, saying to the whole company, we are preparing our employees for any disruption or violence that might occur two weeks from now. Um, and I just kind of went, oof. I don't know what to expect. And I think that may be what's most unsettling. We have a, a man in our class. Uh, I, I thought maybe there's a possibility he might be a guest on our podcast at some point. Yeah, we got to reach back out to him. I think I might have dropped that ball. Uh, yeah. And it, he, he uh, and I had lunch one time, and he was telling me that he grew up in a church mm -hmm. and that this is something that is happening to this moment where pastors are telling parishioners how to vote. There's been such a wedding between mm -hmm. evangelical Christians and the current administration. And I'm not sure what all of that is about. Um, I, I don't know if you take the New York Times or not. Uh, online, and my husband reads it more thoroughly than I do. So we take the New York Times the hard copy edition every day and Sunday and last Sunday, there was an entire section of the New York Times titled A Man Unfit to Serve. Mm. And um, we have to figure out a way to say that mm -hmm. is true. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, um, be clear that we are not trying to offend people who are supporters of Donald Trump, but mm -hmm. to say that there are, are ethic breaches that he has personally and is leading the d country in a direction that is damaging to us. Yeah. And so um, I've been reading quite carefully what the political commentators and the um, law enforcement people are saying and they are expecting if the polls are correct and Biden wins a, a victory and next Tuesday or we'll know um, they are expecting that there's going to be a um, pushback mm -hmm. about that. I think there was something said in, in a rally last night. Imagine how I'm going to feel if I lose. I am not going to be happy. You know, you hear that and you go, how do I, well, maybe the operative response is, how should I hear that? Do I hear that as a, as a threat? Or do I hear that as an expression? And I'm poised to hear it as 
a threat. You know, and I think that there's some dignity that has been lost or maybe it's just been revealed mm -hmm. in that the word of the apocalypse, right? Maybe it's just been rolled back. Mm -hmm. um, but some, some, some dignity, integrity, and poise has been lost. So I have friends um, who live in England and France and Switzerland and Australia and Canada. And I'm in fairly regular communication with them. Uh, friends mm -hmm. in Australia, before I met Michael Morwood, that went on a pilgrimage with us in Italy, and um, their sons come to Houston to visit us and be in our home. And uh, I've talked to these people about, um, give us, give me some feedback about mm -hmm. what you, how you see the United States at the moment. Mm -hmm. And one of them said to me, um, we feel sorry for you. Mm. We pity you. Mm. Mm. And in some ways it is like we are a third world country in terms of handling our, particularly health issues. I do not understand what the push is to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. I do not understand that. Yeah, um, in whose best interest is that? No one's. And most certainly not the poor, most certainly not the underrepresented, most certainly not those who are immigrants who have a hard time getting health care. Right. Most certainly not those with pre-existing conditions who may have been born with that condition, you know. Um, it's it's not good for anyone. I've, I was thinking like, you know, I just thought while you, while we were reconnecting was the affordable care act. Okay. What if we just had the care act that like taught us how to care for one another, you know, that, that instated a law about how to care for one another. So often um, words are phrased in deficit language, what you cannot do. Um, versus what you can do. Um, and so often the messages about what you cannot do are taught to um, those who may be disenfranchised or disempowered. So for example, when I have to teach my kids, my brown boys, about what they cannot do, it lacks some kind of... Um, wordage or verbiage around what they can do and what will this society do for you to care for you <laughs> you know what i'm saying like mm -hmm. what if we could reimagine a care act i actually want to try to play something and, and see if we can have this tiny little recording on this podcast i'll take off my headphones and play it for you but um it's from uh, the trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, where Otis Wood is a pastor. And I may have to use this and ask for permission later or apologize later. It's on YouTube, mm -hmm. so it's public. But, um, but it is a video recording or, and an audio recording of 10 Rules of Survival for Black Kids. And as I was listening to it, I thought, well, what if we had those 10 rules of engagement 
for sort of um, police or law enforcement? What if we had these same rules, right? I want to play it for you. Is that okay? It's about a minute and a half. All right. Ten rules. Ten rules. Ten rules. Ten rules of survival. Ten rules of survival if stopped by the police. Number one, be polite and respectful when stopped by the police. Be polite. Be respectful. Remember that your goal is to get home safely. Your goal is to get home safely. Your goal is to get home safely. I'm sorry. Number two. If you feel your rights have been violated, you and your parents have a right to file a formal complaint with your local police jurisdiction. Number three, do not, under any circumstances, get in an argument with the police. Number four, always remember that anything you say or do can be used against you in court. Number five, keep your hands in plain sight. Make sure the police can see your hands at all times. Number six, Avoid physical contact with police officers. Do not make any sudden movements and keep your hands out of your pockets. Number seven. Do not. Do not. Do not, do not, do not, do not. Do not run, even if you are afraid. Even if you are afraid. Number eight. Even if you believe you are innocent, do not resist arrest. Number nine. If you are arrested, do not make any statements about the incident until you are able to meet with a lawyer or public defender. Number 10, stay calm and remain in control. Watch your words. Watch your body language. Watch your emotions. Remember. Remember. Remember, your goal is to get home safely. Get home safely. If we had a CARE Act, then that same sort of like first do no harm, uh, if we taught to policemen those same rules, number one, speak respectfully. Number two, under no circumstances should you touch or force yourself upon the person that you are stopping, right? Like, my kids and their bodies have to hold this sort of extreme caution of how they have to engage in the world, which limits their freedom to just sort of be, to just kind of be. I would love it if we had a sort of care act that required of those who enforce power, enforce law, enforce quote unquote peace, to engage with my sons as carefully as I have to teach them to engage with the world. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that's true about the system that we are in is that the rules are not the same for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so we've got work to do. We have work to do, and I was reading the e email that I got yesterday from Richard Orr, where he talks about that in order for us to um, get to some new place of order, we may have to go through a period of time of disorder, falling apart. Yeah. 
Well, certainly when we zoom out on the cosmic level, if you will, that's true there too. You know, there were extreme periods of disorder before something new was created. And, you know, my professor Brian Swim says there was an exact right moment for everything that was created or that evolved in the cosmos. So it, it couldn't have come out with everything all at once. It couldn't have been like humans and dinosaurs and Milky Ways and planets all at once. There had to be a period of light, of photons, which then broke apart and had an extreme period of darkness, which then began to reformulate mm -hmm. and constellate and become stars. And then those stars began to form galaxies and so on and so forth. So when I think in that sort of, when I can zoom out and think on the cosmic level and think, okay, that too had to be true in this long 14.8 billion year period of evolution, then it must also be true in social environments. So maybe there's an exact right moment for something to occur, for justice, for true justice to occur. The question is, are we in that moment is this a disruption, a disorder before the reorder, before the creation of something new? I don't think we, I don't think we know. Hopeful. I don't think we know. Right. Yeah. That's where I say I'm hopeful, but not optimistic, <laughs> you know? So um, before we go, um, just in anticipating what we're going to try to mm -hmm. say on Sunday, We've been doing the Beatitudes, there are eight of them, and we're going to conclude this week. And although I do want to continue doing the Sermon on the Mount, I think we may take yeah. a break and talk about some of the Jackie yes. Lewis yeah. stuff that yeah. she left us with. I think that would be really, really, really good to do. Um, but I, I, I want to say that the, the Beatitude that we're looking at this week the one at the beginning and the one at the end are the only ones who talk about um, what we do affecting our participation in what Matthew translates as the kingdom of God. There are only those two, the mm -hmm. first and the last. And it is like that in giving these Beatitudes, and I'm not going to go into biblical criticism or anything right now to talk about. I don't believe that Jesus gave mm -hmm. these all at once mm -hmm. kind of thing, but I, I don't. But the, the, the Beatitudes are given one after another. And then at the end, Jesus says, if you do these things, this is what you can expect. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a disruptor of the system. That's right. And the system is going to bite back. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. Yeah. There are so many folks carrying the water around us. We are not alone mm -hmm. in being sort of disruptors, if you will. But we've got to find those other folks so that we may not go thirsty, yeah. so that we can borrow from each other's buckets of water. You know. Well, I think those folks are probably listening to this podcast. <laughs> they're, grab they're your buckets. The ones who would be doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Grab your buckets. Grab your yeah. Bucket. 
I'm so thankful for you. Oh. I'm thankful that you're a, you're a water uh, carrier, a key thrower. By the way, it's not up yet. Um, but when the Saturday webinar with Jackie Lewis gets put up, I want you folks to see Holly and Jackie interacting. Oh. It was just wonderful. Uh, I mean, really, that was great. Uh, as you said, you saw me being very excited about that. I, it was energizing to hear her talk. She's so smart. Yes. And Oh, gosh, yeah. So committed to her position and comes at it from such a place of authenticity uh, in, mm -hmm. in terms of her religious grounding and her spiritual orientation. And it just was delightful. I hope that we can have her on this podcast someday. I do, too. She wears her God colors. <laughs> yes, she does. She does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have got another commitment to go to. Okay, so, wonderful. Thank you for Thanks doing this. this. I'm so grateful to and for you. Me too. Love you, sir. Love you. Bye.